0: You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hey everyone, Matt from Occupier here. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of The Fully Occupied Podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure you subscribe on your favorite listening platform. Or just shoot us a note at marketing at occupier.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on future guests, topics you'd like to hear about. Ask us any questions you have or just say hi. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining the show. Uh, This conversation is from an episode on the PropTech VC that I had recently with Zane Jaffer. Enjoy.
1: On today's Prop Tech VC podcast, we're joined by Matt Jafoon, the co-founder of Occupier, They've raised $16 million in venture capital, and they're pioneering the future of lease management and helping real estate executives make smarter real estate decisions. Matt, it's been a while
0: since we spoke. How are you? I'm doing well, Zane. Thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it.
1: So Matt, tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up here as the co-founder of a fast-growing venture-backed startup.
0: I, I have a professional background in commercial real estate. So I graduated from college in uh, 2003 with really no real plans of what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I guess that's what you get with a liberal arts education, Um, but it does prepare you to, you know, be resilient and and figure things out on your own. So uh, I figured out that I wanted to get into the real estate industry. Um, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, um, but I knew that I wanted to be on the commercial side, whether that was in development or leasing or property management or whatever. And I ended up working at JLL, which um, is you know, one of the big boys in, in commercial real estate services globally. My first job there was as a uh, tenant rep analyst. So essentially corporations that uh, relied on JLL to manage their uh, real estate portfolios would uh, hire us to execute their transactions. Each one of those transactions has an underlying Cash flow, uh, some analysis that has to go into. Okay, how much money do we spend? What's my capex? What's my rent? How does that compare to the market? How does that compare to other buildings? I was basically the spreadsheet jockey uh, for all the brokers that were doing the deals. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years, and then I graduated and becoming a broker myself, uh, where I spent most of my time uh, representing tenants and landlords in their lease negotiations. It was like a hybrid sales role, but also a client service role, where you're, you know, actively uh, advising people um, through a process that is usually foreign to them to some. We'll get back to that and how that that uh, led me to doing what I'm doing, but I felt in around 2014 that the industry still ne- it needed a lot of modernization. Like we had all sorts of CRM tools and technology at JLL, some were great, but the vast majority of it was not really purpose-built for how brokers would work. And I I just thought there was a lot of innovation runway in the space. Um, So rather than try to change JLL myself, I went and worked at a company called VTS, which um, at the time was pivoting from like a video touring kind of marketing software platform, which they're actually doing again now, which is awesome, into more of like a data management, uh, SaaS uh, leasing and asset management software platform. And I thought that was something that was sorely needed in our industry. Um, so I went and worked at VTS. I stayed there for a little more than uh, four years. Um, I met some great people there. Uh, that was kind of my startup MBA, kind of learned how a company scales from that series A and on. And I really actually cut my teeth from like an enterprise sales perspective there as well. Uh, learned how to sell software in uh, complicated uh, deals. But while I was working there, um, it became clear to me that while VTS was being a, uh, building a great product that was super valuable and sticky for its users, there's it only addressing uh, one half of the market. And that was the landlord, um, which is a huge market and it's a huge, you know, multi-trillion-dollar asset class. But um, the tenants that occupied commercial space uh, were also sorely under-served um, by technology. Um, so just started scratching the itch of what would it be like if you know tenants had a, um, a central kind of infrastructure software that they could use uh, to make their real estate decisions, whether those are transactional, their portfolio management, or you know just generally uh, centralizing their work. So I'll, I'll pause there, because that's when we started uh, thinking about occupier seriously, and that was about uh, four years ago uh, that we jumped into startup land.
1: Thank you for that. You, you mentioned um, 2014, you felt the industry needed a lot of innovation. We're here now, and we're at 2022. <laughs> A lot of people still feel the same way. Firstly, how do do you feel the same way? (laughs) A lot of folks in PropTech feel that this industry is ripe for disruption, but it's getting tiring hearing this for years and years and years. Are we at that cusp of major change? Did COVID accelerate that and bring that? Or are things just gonna continually, you know, being slow with with adoption? Like, let's unpack that to tell us more about what you feel and why.
0: Well, yeah, I think I think there's two questions in there. One is, has the industry, you know, made it up the learning curve? And two is like, what are what's changing that's going to make it, you know, really, you know, flip into a modern industry? Like, you know, stock bro stock used to, you know, trade on paper, right? Now it's all you know uh, algorithmic trading, right? Will that ever happen in commercial real estate? Nah, I don't know. But if you bring it back like to 2014. I would say prop tech started becoming an actual investable category by, you know, venture capital in like 2010, 11, 12. Right. So it's about 10 years since prop tech has been a thing. Um, and I think the, the misnomer is that everyone's trying to disrupt commercial real estate. I don't think that, I mean, I don't even think that's the first phase of what prop tech is. I think prop tech is actually bringing technology to commercial real estate and it's a huge, huge industry. There's multi-sectors of it, right? There's commercial, there's multifamily, there's pretty much anything that is an asset. Um, It could be defined as real estate in some sense. So each one of the corners of that industry needs to be innovated and innovation is constant, right? It just so happens that real estate is one of the, like the last corners of industry that hasn't been innovated yet. And on top of that, I think that up until now, and I think the pandemic has accelerated this and we can get into that too, most of the capital that's been poured into PropTech has been focused on um, owners, property owners, landlords, the physical world. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that the tenants the people that are occupying space and creating workspaces using it to sell goods to distribute um, goods have largely been ignored and that was kind of the force that or or that was the thesis that we had when we started this business um and then so the second part of your question i think is has the pandemic is that going to be the black swan event that just makes everybody you know light bulb like we got to figure this out and i think the answer is yes because the vast majority of our customers who are all tenants commercial tenants um, have used this uh moment in time to really evaluate like how are we actually managing the second largest expense on our balance sheet like holy crap, we had all these thousands of people working in our offices. We just paid the rent and gave them a desk. And now they're all working from home. Now they're demanding things from us. None of them want to come back. Some of them do. Um, They want to be remote. They want to have a different work experience. And now if you want to unpack that from a traditional real estate sense, like, well, we also have all of these leases that we're uh, you know, confined in. What do we do with all the information in those leases? How do we negotiate out of them? How do we re-strategize our portfolio so it suits the needs of the new employee? So it, unless you have like a technology backbone uh, that you're using, for all of those decisions, it's going to be really hard to make sense of anything. So, and, and the reason is because there's so many constituents within a business that touch that real estate decision. It's the C-suite, it's the real estate department itself, it's the finance team, it's human resources, it's the business unit owners that have to occupy that space. So it's just this kind of mushrooming problem right now. Um, so I think the timing is right for a platform like or ours to come in and be that like infrastructure software, you know, for a business to make its real estate decision. So I know I threw a lot back at you there. If you want to unpack that a little more, I'm happy. You know, we we can we can dive into some of the the questions of like, you know, people keep saying, yeah.
1: It feels like, and I'm I'm familiar with the company just for the viewers' context, so I can probably dig deeper here. I I regrettedly didn't invest in in Occupy, and (laughs) they've done fantastically well. And you know, that's just the nature of venture capital, right? You you're going to miss amazing companies when you have good deal flow, and this is an example. But what do you think about an opinion I have as a venture capitalist who's investing in PropTech? To me, it feels like if you're going in and you there is an existing budget in place already for a specific problem the company's trying to solve, and when you have that situation, they already have a lot of solutions because everyone's going after the easy fixes. There isn't much of an incentive to go adopt a new player even if the value proposition is superior. I don't mean disruptive. Disruptive value proposition is, you know, 10X better, or, you know, it's like a huge discount on the cost. Whereas when you have a new set of problems that the industry has never dealt with, let's take workplace occupancy, for example, here. You've never had this situation where a large part of your real estate suddenly needs to be repurposed and a large contingent needs to work from home. And you've now got this portfolio and you need to figure out what you're going to do with it. When you have those types of problems that emerge, new problems where there isn't even an existing budget for it, you know, it doesn't really fall under lease administration. This is like a whole new area. That's where the massive big opportunities are. Whereas when you're going after, and it's annoying to hear for founders who are trying to figure out, you know, let me go build a company where there's all these 10, 20 problems. Well, the problem is there's lots of solutions. So my opinion is when there's a, a disruption in the industry and there isn't yet a clear budget defined for it, that's where there can be very large opportunities. Whereas when you're going after the Areas that are well defined and there's competitors already, it's kind of hard to switch out competitive products because people are just comfortable with what they have. I mean, a lot of people use Excel and it's hard to convince them to get off Excel even.
0: Well, what's yeah. your thoughts on that? I I, I agree with you, although okay, I think there are then. sleep <laughs> <laughs> I think there are sleeping industries and I think ours is one of them where somebody can come in and really unseat the incumbent way of doing things, even though there might already be budget allocation for a, a, a type of software like that. And I think it's about market timing. Like, w- let's just talk about our company as an example of that. So when we started the company, we knew that there were already kind of legacy solutions in the market that have been adopted for lease administration, for example. We also knew that the lease accounting changes that were coming down the pipe for every company to comply with were super complex. And yeah, there was already a few things on the market that did that. They've been around for a while, but we also knew that people weren't that happy with those solutions. They were like web 1.0. Uh, they were either like super point solution. They only um, worked for like one user persona within a business. <laughs> we started the company two years before the pandemic, so we didn't actually, obviously we couldn't forecast that. Uh, that just kind of helped our cause, you know, uh, as perverse as that may sound, but I think If you looked at if you looked at the the forces that were happening in our market, that's what creates that opportunity for us to come in and be uh, different than everything that everybody's seen so far. Um, And part of it is just general basic uh, building a better mousetrap like we have a much more user friendly platform than anybody that we compete with we deploy it faster, it's much more intuitive. So if you are asking somebody at a high-tech company that's less than 10 years old to buy software, they're gonna buy the one that feels like an iPhone. I open the box and I know how to use it. They're not gonna to wanna to buy, buy the one that you have to open 10 windows to get the, to the report that you want. So, I mean, that's what we're competing against. And of course, Excel, You know, every, every SaaS company competes with Excel in some fashion. Um, so if I was raising money, and my value proposition was like, oh, God, we're just gonna get people off of spreadsheets. If I was the VC on the other side of the table, I'm like, I've heard that a million times. Like, what's changed in your industry that make is is gonna make everybody buy this? And then I think the other part of it is like just the sheer size of the market you're going after. Ours is massive because of these lease accounting changes had essentially are forcing every company to understand their underlying real estate. And if those are, if all the data that drives that function is locked up in PDFs uh, leases. Then you're, you're never going to even understand. Forget about the pandemic. Like you just have to understand what you have. I think Deloitte made a study about two years ago that said that 58% of companies still have all of their lease documentation on paper. So I mean, just right there, there's a huge opportunity to digitize um, a major function within a business. Um, so I just, I, I, the part I disagree with with your um, thought is that. I don't think you need a massively disruptive business model to come in and build a big company. I think you just need to do something like really, really well that solves real world problems for users. And the more users you can solve for, the more sticky your product is within that enterprise. And if you're good at selling that, I think you can build a big business.
1: Yeah, and very interesting um, sort of counterpoints there that uh, I, I accept in that you have a lot of legacy players who are building software in the traditional, we can call it web 1.0 state. And that's frustrating and annoying, but I don't think that it in itself is enough to be you know unseated for me, or at least for you, surely, right? You mentioned lease accounting rules and regulations changing. And I'm assuming the pandemic, one hell of a trend, right, created a new set of problems to solve. Had those two things not been in place, surely it would have been a lot harder. It would have been harder to to get the attention of uh, the customer set. Or do you feel like, no, even without that, UX is so important that UX itself is enough to disrupt and deceive.
0: Uh, No, you have to have a real problem to solve. And especially when you have two huge ones uh, at the same time, yeah. you know, that, that's obviously that's where the opportunity, when, when there's churn in the market, that's where the opportunity comes out of. Um, but regulations are a great thing to build co- uh, products around, right? The government says, Hey, there's a new law that says you have to do this. Look at the transportation industry, right? If you're a transportation company, I'm sure there's, you know, numerous laws that you have to uh, comply with. Um, if you don't know them, that's not your job is knowing the law, then someone's going to step in and create a product that allows you to, to be in compliance with those laws. So I think there's a, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. You can't just say, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna pick um, an industry and just go build a more beautiful looking product and, and say that I'm gonna go beat everybody by selling this.
1: Yeah, exactly. It, it's not enough, and and one thought a lot of founders have is, well, let me let me price this at a you know a discount to what the current market offers. It still isn't enough. In fact, there's a perception too that look, we've got budget for this, we're happy to keep spending it, and there must be something wrong with your product.
0: You know, it takes yeah. a while
1: for some people to understand that free isn't good. You should no. charge because you're expected to charge, right? <laughs>
0: but as a as an entrepreneur, wouldn't you want to charge more money for your product? And the only way you're going to charge more money is that. There's more value there.
1: Well, there's two different camps, right? There's the camp where I wanna build Facebook and I wanna, you know, make it free and I'll make revenue later on the back end through data. And I don't think that pitch works very well in PropTech. tech. It, it doesn't. It works really well in other industries. For PropTech, I really, in most cases, I don't think so. Um, the other approach is we have a really clear value proposition. We solve a problem the way others don't. We're not, and this is what I've heard you say, we're not changing the business model of our company. You don't have to come in necessarily and have a disrupted business model. You need to solve a really clear problem. And if you can point that problem to regulatory change or a nature in the dynamics of the marketplace like you know COVID's completely changed the way offices are, are run and managed right yep. if you can pitch if you can ride those trends you still need to do everything else perfectly you still mm. need to have the right pricing you still need to have amazing ux it's still not enough you know uh, yep. but you definitely need those i think as a precursor now i'm sure viewers are listening and thinking well i can think of you know, one, two, three examples that contradict that. Well, we're talking about patterns here. We're talking about prop tech generally. You know, there's always an exception <laughs> to the rule. Yeah. Um, the the other thing, um, and you've been in this industry for a while. The one thing you can bet on is that I, I believe as a founder, you should always think your competitors are cutthroat and they're you know like ten steps ahead of you. But the fact, the reality is, um, they're not. They're very slow. They're very archaic. And the fact that they're entrenched in their position makes them lazy. If they've been acquired, and you, you can, I don't know if you can speak to this, but you've seen acquisitions happen all over the front, right? The founding. Spirit is lost and things just yeah. become part of the corporate machine. And that also leaves them vulnerable to, you know, annoy their customers. And there's your opportunity as a startup.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're right. I think there's like this almost kind of like off-gassing of the, uh, the, those Web 1.0 customers back into the market who are like, ah, the company that I signed up for seven years ago, isn't that cool anymore? And they're not really that responsive and they haven't really innovated that much. And hey, my contract's coming up. I'm going to explore the market. Oh, look, there's this new company out here that's way better. And they do all this other stuff and they want their product managers to get on the phone with me and really get my feedback. And, you know, you have to keep that start startup spirit alive, or, or yeah, or you're going, you're going to get unseated yourself for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now let's talk a bit about what's happening with the world of work. At the time of recording this podcast, it feels like we're out of the pandemic, and <laughs> it feels like yeah. this is the first attempt for people to go back to to. Uh, well, I don't want to say go back to an office environment. I actually want to ask you, what what is the status quo right now? Um, what, what's happening really? How does the future of work currently look like? Which direction is it heading in? And are the persona types are companies doing things differently? And How do you categorize the way people are real?
0: Uh, It's random. I still think that, yeah, I mean, okay, let's just say that we're out of the pandemic, which you know, we're probably technically not, but it feels like we are in many places, right? So you have businesses who are now faced with the question of like, okay, how are we going to go back to work? Well, you can ask a lot of businesses that we never left work. We just kind of moved it around. So it's going to require even more empathy for the employee now. And because two years, we all all been working from home. some people, I I was on the phone, I was on, I was interviewing somebody today, actually for a a key role. And, you know, he works from home, but he likes to go into the office, but he realized by working from home, he could actually be closer to his kids from time to time. He could, you know, get things done that he normally wouldn't be able to do during a work week. And that's not to say that I like assumed he was like slacking off, but like, that's true. Like there's more to life than your job. And and especially with the idea of commuting, it makes people uh, less likely to want to sit in their car for an hour on their way into the city. Um, So those, those facts, I think need to be looked at seriously uh, because I think the workplace is really wherever somebody can do their best work. And I think, I think I saw a, um, a headline the other day that Jamie Dimon, you know, has, has lost to the work, work from home crowd, right? Like, cause he was the first guy that was like, Hey, we want you back in the office. We need people here. Um, and whether you agree with that or not, that, that was like, someone has to take a stance and draw a line. But I think the reality is, is after two years of giving people a little bit more flexibility and freedom, you can't just you can't act like that because everyone's going to be dusting off the resume. Um, so I think that you have to have the empathy for the employee. From our perspective, we've grown headcount wise throughout the last two years of the pandemic. And it's actually been very helpful for us because it's broken down the borders of where you can hire awesome talent. You know, we have, we're in Boston, we have two hubs, one in Boston and one in New York. And we've opened our offices back up, but we haven't forced people to say, we need you in here two, three days a week. It's like, we have an office, like we love to collaborate, come on in. But if you can't, we understand your best work is, you know, at your home setup, then by all means, get it done. And then I think companies will start to shift the way they use their space. They won't lease as many big headquarters locations uh, they might do the hub and spoke model a little bit more or they might not lease as much space at all and they'll get their teams together remotely um more frequently in like you know shared or or you know communal office settings or just like offsites. so i think what we're going to plan to do is have offices where it makes sense from a center of gravity perspective and then get our teams together um you know as frequently as we can um, you know, for camaraderie's sake, but for also just you know, synchronous working and stuff like that. So I, I don't know. I, I wish I had an answer uh, that you know tells you like by this date the world is going to go back to the way it was but i just i just don't think it is
1: and neither can you tell us i'm seeing you know these four categories or these two categories with companies is it truly random
0: you're not seeing patterns well yeah we there we have a pattern um 2021 we we pulled some data on our in and in our system and we learned that of the clients that we have that are office occupier clients um on a cohort basis they expanded their footprints in 2021 by 30% when i say footprint i mean number of leases, not square footage. Wow. So what that tells us is that businesses that have people space are actually opening more offices, which is probably a reaction to be having an office in closer proximity to more people rather than having one central headquarters and like a CBD that people want to go into. So I think people are, are going to start spreading out their office portfolios, which will mean more leases in more locations, rather than having that like big, uh, you know, headquarters lease uh, on the west coast and on the east coast. Um, and I think there's two benefits to that. One is you provide a more flexibility to your employer employees, uh, but it also allows you to recruit more areas than you normally wouldn't have thought of.
1: Matt, what was your what, what was your philosophy prior to the pandemic? So you know, you, you, I don't want to hear philosophy now. It looks like everyone has is more progressive and is like you know. What would you describe before all this, an office type of person?
0: Um, I've always been an office type of person. My personal philosophy, Um, fortunate enough to be one of the owners of my company and can kind of dictate where my office is. So I have an eight minute walk home. But... Um, so that, al- that allows me to jump home and pick up the kids on, you know, from the bus when I have to, and there's some flexibility just based on proximity for me. Um, but I work better when I have a separation of, uh, environments. Um, I just like the idea of getting up in the morning, going to the gym and then heading into the office and having certain times to focus on certain things. If I'm at home, I'm less productive personally. I, I'm just gonna go down to the kitchen grab a snack you know that makes me make a cup of coffee I look at my phone 20 minutes later I've just burned a half an hour so for for me for my money I like being in the office now that, that doesn't mean I'm ever going to force up other people to do stuff like that but yeah but pre-pandemic um yeah I was in the office every day
1: so and, and it sounds like you still are in the office every day you, you need um, that separation you're not a hybrid type of person at least hybrid in the sense that oh work from home Monday Tuesdays go to the office Wednesday Thursday Fridays Sounds to me like you work well in an office environment, and that's a prototype of many people, too, obviously. I guess it comes down to personality, right? Or does it come down to home setup? Because not everyone has the luxury of, of having a home that's setup. That's
0: true. Yeah, that's really true. Um, I That's why I, I go back to the fact that like, you know, you got to be more empathetic to the employee because everybody's got a different situation, right? Like I, when we were peak pandemic and my wife and I were both working from home, we had to buy two desks. We put one in our bedroom, we put one down in the main living area and she's downstairs on calls. I'm upstairs on calls. I'm literally spending 16 hours a day in my bedroom. I sleep there and I work there. Of course,
1: sometimes, you know, it's not good. Yeah. For-
0: yeah. So for me, I didn't like that, but other people might love it. I don't know. Um and so like when I work from home today, it's more out of necessity, like oh, my kids aren't in school today, so I'm going to work from home and, you know, try to be a dad at the same time. Or, um, you know, I have to be at an appointment in the afternoon, so there's no sense in going to the office for the day if I if I have to, like, go somewhere. So I'll, I'll start from the, the morning in the office or in the home or something like that.
1: And, and I, I've always, I've mainly been a founder through every hat that I've worn throughout my career. Now I'm on the other side as an investor and I've always been diehard office. And I created a culture. We had, I believe eight offices around the world when I started my, not started, you know, when my company had scaled, right? The startup I founded. Yeah. And um, I don't know why we were so against the remote work. We, we had situations where people had legitimate reasons where they couldn't come into the office. And we would put people on notice and we would literally fire them if they weren't in the office, you know, because there was a perception that you have to be in the office to be productive. And we were also worried and I don't know why we were worried. We were worried, well, if we let person A, you know, come in later on Wednesdays and leave earlier on Fridays, then we have to offer that to everyone. And before we know it, everyone's going to do this because everyone's lazy. We had this wrong perception. Yeah. And we were fighting this and became a bad culture because I became, as a CEO, right? I started to feel like, wow, when I'm not in the office, I feel guilty. And I'm in the office. And I'm not productive as a CEO. How the hell can a CEO be productive in the office? They should be out of the office. Same with the salespeople. Creates a culture where who's in the office is the one who gets promoted, is the one who gets to rub shoulders and play politics, which I tell you was wrong for the way my company was run. And I take accountability for that, but I'm a tech guy. I'm a forward thinking founder and that's how I am. You can imagine yeah. how the rest of corporate America
0: is. You know? Yeah. 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 No, I a hundred percent agree with that. I think, uh, um, especially when I was in real estate brokerage, uh, you know, the people that were eating lunch by themselves in the cafe of the office were the ones that were like, what are you doing? You got to be out there having lunch with the potential clients. Um, so I had this idea, this kind of thought, Like my, I had an initial visceral um, kind of reaction when, pandemic initially hit and you know the first wave of people were trying to you know posit posit their takes on what the future of the office was going to be and my thing was like I, I don't know what everybody's big deal is like salespeople have been on the road forever trying to work remotely. Like, you know, there's this isn't like a brand new thing. It's just that the pandemic brought it into, oh wait a minute, like maybe people could actually be productive working like this, not just the salespeople or the people that need to be on the road, but everybody. But yeah, I still think there's gonna be a whole mess of corporate America that really needs to get pulled into that mindset.
1: I think I think where we come out of this at least is now people have tasted things and had you know, it's very easy to shut down something. And we when I ran my company, we shut down a lot of, you know, r- remote work type of opportunities. And in the end, I felt like, well, I'm a CEO and need to be out of the office actually. You know, and I'd forced myself to be in the office more often. So I felt I was there, but I was not helping the company doing that. Uh, But, you know, you look at engineers, engineers like to come in late and they like to put the headphones on and they don't want to be disturbed. And I, you know, I've been programming myself for a couple of years now just to see what it's like. Uh, And I hate it when I'm disrupted. I cannot work. Right. Mm -hmm. Salespeople shouldn't be in the office, really. You know, so so it comes to a point where maybe the, the way we've engineered the office is one where it's too old school. We're trying to build something for everyone and you end up building something that's not ideal. If you can figure out how to make the most of your workforce, you can do that by giving them each their ideal setting and environment. Hard to do. Yeah. I mean, the technology solutions that help, but that's the philosophy, I think.
0: Yeah, you're right. I think technology is the other thing that has made this conversation a lot more difficult to put your finger on because with technology, you can, it's weird. Like You say salespeople shouldn't be in the office. I bet you I could do more meetings in a day on Zoom as a salesperson than I could if I was you know, flying to Toronto and then booking a bunch of different meetings and yeah. trying to move all around the city. Now I used to do that for a living and I loved it and I felt productive, but imagine being able to stack those meetings with like five minute breaks in between and just feeling like, wow, I just increased my pipeline by two X this week because wow. I got all the, I got all those calls done. Um, so that's a game changer. And,
1: that, that's yeah. a game changer that I, you're right. You know, it used to be that salespeople had to be on the road but you're no. right. With the advent of uh, video conferencing,
0: it, in, in, in asynchronous work, like on Slack and you know whatever whatever collaboration tools allow for better 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 outcomes, it's it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to see how the current situation is isn't better than the, than the old one.
1: So you you hinted to this, you mentioned Slack, you mentioned Zoom. What are some of the cool uh, technologies that you are implementing or you're seeing your clients implement to be more suited for a hybrid or, you know, a random work environment?
0: I don't think there's anything like that's like revolutionized. It, I think SaaS cloud's like work software has been around forever. It's just better now. It has to be user friendly, especially like our employee base is rather young and they're going to expect the tools that they use on their job to be easy to use and easy to figure out and you know not bog them down so our tech stack is 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 all pretty modern right like we use G suite for our gmail we use which most people use for their personal email so it's very easy to kind of transition to that uh, we use hubspot for our crm it's super user friendly uh it's scalable we use that for our marketing as well you know i won't go through everything that we use but i think that like you know, we, we obviously we use Slack um, and I don't think there's, I don't think there's like just like revolutionary. Okay. We could, we could start talking about the metaverse here, right? Like maybe there's a, uh, uh, an office somewhere in web three where you can log in every day and physically be in an office and, you know, work with the people that, are in Singapore or something, uh, but be in the metaverse. I don't really. I, I still can't figure out that's different than real life uh, quite yet. But um, I
1: think if we can invent hypersonic jets that can get to Singapore quickly, it's a lot more convenient than wearing a, a virtual reality yeah. headset and all of that, you know, tethering that comes with it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I don't. I don't know. Um, I think business software. What we were talking about before. There's always going to be new stuff that comes out better. It's going to be new and it's going to be better. It's going to be new and it's going to be better. But is there really like some massive disruptive?
1: So if it's not force? if it's not technology, what about the level of communication needed when you're running a, an environment where you've got more distributed employees? It's critical, right? Does that mean you're constantly having to uh having to um make announcements and write a lot to your employees and just co- content and communication becomes even more important for the CEO and the executive team?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, I think written communication is it's paramount because no one's not, you're not recording every zoom, you know, it- if decisions are made on a call, then someone has to have taken notes and there has to be like a readout, right? If there's, you know, look at the product management process. If you're trying to develop a product across multiple time zones with different constituents, everyone has to have some sort of central place where they could look and be like, okay, what are we building? Uh, Who wrote this down? What are the questions? What's the problem? What's the solution? So yes, uh, writing things down is super important, which is interesting because I think this new breed of workers that comes out of College looking for jobs, they have to have, have really good written communication school uh, skills. You know, it's not. I'm not talking about texting and using emojis. I'm like talking like really good writers. So I I think writing is is probably the most important thing um, because people don't always pay attention on a call, especially if it's 25 30 people. Right, you're gonna take your video off and you're not you're not gonna pay attention. um But if you have a recording of that meeting and it's written down, then you could reference it then you know that that kind of saves the day
1: and Matt what habits do you have um, it sounds like you wake up at some time and you go to the gym and that's how you operate effectively give us a rundown of, of your ideal productive day because I know there's no I, I've never been able to have the perfect day there's too mm-hmm. many things I need to get done in a perfect day and it contradicts itself because I can't code and read a book and go to the gym and you know <laughs> do a bunch of stuff what's your ideal day look like what's your secret productivity hack?
0: Well, I think the most important thing about what you just said is that, I mean, you seem to have the personality where like, you you never feel like you're doing enough and I, I got to be doing more. You gotta, you gotta pull back from that. Right. Cause that's like your, your type A ego saying like, I'm not doing enough. Like this day wasn't productive enough, but really you're doing great, man. You know, like you, you had, you got, you got a few, you moved a few big rocks in the day. And I think that's the way I look at it. Right. Um, so my, 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 ideal day or my normal day is I, I wake up, I got two young boys. Um, I spend time with them in the morning, uh, from, you know, wake up breakfast and then I take them to the bus and they go to school and then, then I go to the gym. And so like, that's my personal time where whatever nervous energy that's swirling around in my head is, you know, left at the gym. I try to get that out there. And oh. then, then I, then I'm like, I got some mental clarity. I'm showered up, I'm ready to go, I get my coffee, and then I'm I'm, you know, at work. And I usually try, this is where you have to be very disciplined, is I try to block my mornings off for like focus time to get stuff done that is like strategic.
1: What time are you up and, and actually working or are you just getting ready for the day and spending time with kids?
0: It depends on how um, how quickly I pick up my phone and start looking at email and Slack. But, um, you know, I wake up around like six and my kids are up 15 minutes later than me. We eat breakfast, they're out the door in 45 minutes, they're at the bus. Um, I'm not at my desk working until about like 8.45. I used to be more psycho-like about that. I used to get up and go to the gym at like 5.30 in the morning because I wanted to get it away even earlier so I could get to the office by seven. And I started experimenting with like different, like, Organ different ways to organize the day and landed on this one. But, you know,
1: What time are you done? yeah. What time are you done with that? You're one of those people who works at an office. Unfortunately, it's only eight minutes, so the commute time isn't a factor. But what time do you try to be out of the hof- office to have your work-life balance with family?
0: Uh, I usually leave the office around like five o'clock. And that's because that's when my kids get dropped off from the bus. And then it's like, okay, put the phone away spend some family time, get, you know, you get two to three hours until they go to bed. And then of course, you know, you want to spend some time with your wife. So it's like, okay, we're going to, I'm not going to pick up the laptop tonight and, you know, clean out my inbox. I'm going to leave that for the morning. So those are, but some nights...
1: Some nights you don't So it sounds, like it, it sounds like it varies right some yeah, nights you, some, you
0: like, like last night, our head of sales was like, "Hey, we got a uh, pitch uh, at eleven thirty tonight uh, with the company on the on on uh, in Asia, and I need this I need all of this information for this call, and I can't track down the person for it, so I had to jump on spend two hours you know putting information together for for a sales pitch and, that's and, fine,
1: and Matt, it's wonderful to hear not 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 your habits. It's wonderful to hear what your habits are and that you've actually got a what sounds like." A good balance. I, I had, I struggled with balance as a founder myself and you know, I'm a VC now and I see many founders struggle with balance. And I, I now believe it's not sustainable. You can get a lot done perhaps in the early days. And I don't know if you agree, it feels like you're at product market fit. Now you're definitely not the same company you were two years ago. Um, at the early days, maybe you need to work harder. Or do you believe? No, it's a marathon the whole way at the yeah. early days. You still cannot be sprinting constantly. My, my belief has been that I had to sprint for my company to launch. But I was a naive entrepreneur and I don't know how I feel now, but what do you feel? Well,
0: oh, how old how old were you when you started your company? I
1: was in my twenties. I guess it doesn't count, yeah. you know. So.
0: Well, that's I think the difference. I'm 41. I didn't start this until I was 37. Wow. And I had kids. So I was probably in this mindset where I already had more important priorities in my life before I started this business. Okay. So it's yeah, I look. If you talk to my wife, she'd probably just be rolling her eyes and being like, "What are you talking about? You work all the time. That's all you care about." But
1: <laughs> that's all you talk about, right? That's what she'll Yeah, say. yeah,
0: exactly. But um, I yeah, I I I think that um, you can build a startup without it owning you.
1: I agree. I agree, and it's inspiring to hear that for folks who are, you know, thinking about their next thing. Um, there's no excuse you know you just have to make it work and i believe it's more sustainable and what you may see as an obstacle actually helps you create balance like you gave examples of you know your children needing to go to school and picking them up that that forces you to create balance uh, and those around you well matt this has been wonderful if any of our um listeners want to reach you uh how can they reach you if you can spell it out and is there any type of person you're looking for? because uh, we have a wide range of listeners anyone specific who would be an ideal customer for you who could reach out
0: uh, yeah we you can find me at uh matt uh at occupier.com that's my direct email um you can find me on twitter at matt Jifune. that's m-a-t-t-g-i-f-f-u-n-e you could Search my name on LinkedIn. Uh, those are the three main things you can find me at. Who I'd like to um, connect with are uh, people that want to work at a cool startup um, with a great culture. So, primarily, um, awesome people to come work here smart, talented, hardworking. Uh, anybody in the real estate industry that touches leasing, we'd love to talk to you, whether you're a broker, tenant, a landlord. Um, you know, let's build a community.
1: Great. Matt at Occupy.com. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Zane. Appreciate it.